Thank you for tuning in. Some portions of this episode may be hard to hear. Listener discretion is advised. It's been quite a while since we talked about University of Georgia law student Tara Louise Baker, who was murdered in her East Athens, Georgia home 22 years ago. Now, over the course of 25 episodes, we covered a lot of ground together. We heard some tough stories, but along the way, we met a lot of wonderful people, too. And there were times when we felt so close to the truth, only to be let down or introduced to another avenue yet to be explored. I am so proud of the work this community did together, and our hearts remain with the family of Tara Louise Baker, who you're going to hear from later. You know, her story seemed to have hit a dead end here on the podcast, with our work now needing to be looked at and picked up by law enforcement who can do something about it. In fact, that might have you wondering, why an episode now? Well, because something is stirring. You see, over the last couple of months, Tara's case has been heavy on my heart again, and it's always, if not every single day, on my mind. I found myself once again drawn to my bookshelf, taking each folder of the case file we built together, spending sleepless nights again combing through the pages, interview transcripts, police reports, arson reports, the list really goes on and on. And I kept feeling a calling, if you will, a call to look just one more time, with hopes that I might read something that we found together differently. Or maybe I'd happen upon the missing detail that I somehow overlooked. There's a saying, it says, things come in waves, right? It seems like every month at least one person reaches out to share their story or their truth. And some of those leads prove very fruitful and are still being tracked down. Some join countless others in the three-ring binder waiting for more substance. Each one, however, vitally important. And now, the waves have been stirring. In just the last two months, several new people emailed in to ClassicCityCrime at gmail.com to share their story. Others have called the still very active tip line to talk through the encounters they had 22 years ago that they now wonder about anew. Each of them have one thing in common, and that is that they have just now, all these months later, discovered the work that we're doing here each of them feeling compelled by the words of Tara's family to speak out after all these years. And that's why I've always believed and told you all over and over again that telling these stories and preserving these voices are so important. Because someone, somewhere, might happen upon the episodes, they might hear that little detail that encourages them to speak up. And that is exactly why we're back here again today. So let's go back. Go back to that winter day of January 19th, 2001, 
travel down the Lexington Road corridor with a left on Cooper Road, and finally that right into the Deer Park subdivision, a place we all now know kept dark secrets, had a recent history of odd happenings, and most shockingly on that January day became the place that a fire occurred. A fire that would yield a body and subsequent investigation that would keep us all wondering, all these years later, who killed Tara Louise Baker and why? In one of the original episodes about Tara's case, I said this, And if there are any ACC Fire Department folks out there with a little bit of information, I would love to talk to you. And today, over a year and a half after that episode's release, that man has found us. He's found the Baker family, and he's ready to tell you what was actually discovered behind the brick walls at the home on Fawn Drive. The Tara Baker story is not over. This is Classic City Crime. I'm Cameron J. The call to 911 regarding smoke billowing from 160 Fawn Drive came from someone in the Deer Park neighborhood. At 11.23, dispatched informed the Athens-Clark County Fire Department, and by 11.28, they were on the scene. Let's take a look back for a moment at the narrative written by the responding firefighter about what he found that day, obtained by Classic City Crime through an open records request. It reads, quote, Upon our arrival, we found heavy smoke and flames coming from the rear corner of the apartment. The front door appeared to be locked and also deadbolted. We kicked in the front door and entered the apartment with an attack line. While trying to locate the source of the fire, we noticed that all four burners on an electric range were on high in the kitchen. Also, we found a bedroom door and adjacent bathroom door were both locked. We kicked both doors in. Inside the bedroom in the back corner, we found heavy flames. As the fire was almost out and the smoke cleared, we found the body of what appeared to be a young white female lying in the floor of the bedroom at the time of this report. The victim had not been identified. Police and forensic officers were on the scene doing an investigation. A white 1996 Dodge Neon with a Clark County tag was parked in front of the apartment. This car is registered to Tara Baker of 160 Fawn Drive. Inside of the apartment, on the wall next to the room of fire origin, we found a smoke detector lying on a table that may have been removed or fell off the wall before our arrival. After talking with personnel, it was determined that the fire department personnel removed the smoke detector from the wall. End quote. The report was signed by the officer in charge, Mr. Doug Whitehead. Well, um, I'm a, I was a firefighter in Athens for almost 35 years, and I responded to this call on Deer Park. I was a sergeant and the officer in charge of that the first arriving engine, uh, and there would have been three of us on the truck that actually entered the premises. It was these individuals of the athens Clark County Fire Department who were the first to arrive on the scene. 
They were the ones who found Tara in the place and position she was left in by her murderer. And it was Doug who, for the first time here, is going to be sharing the true details of what they really found that day. Here's why I think Doug's presence on the podcast is so important. Because in our own search for truth here at Classic City Crime, we've heard conflicting stories about all of these things. How the fire was started, the secureness of the windows, the doors, and whether or not they were locked. And you know, the police would at times tell the family one thing, as you'll recall. And then at times, that narrative seems to directly conflict with the narrative of people like Doug, who were on scene first. So, why now, after all this time, is Doug speaking out to Classic City Crime? Well, well, a friend of mine notified me about the podcast, and I had no idea about it. And I remember hearing you on there. I listened to the whole thing and, and hearing you say that hopefully one day you could talk, talk with a firefighter that was there. And I said, well, I'll give him a call. <laughs> damn sure did. Now let's turn back to Doug's first arrival on the scene and what he remembers about the initial call that something was very, very wrong at a home in East Athens. Arrival, I, of course, radioed in that we were there and I gave the pertinent information. And we pulled off the inch and a half attack line and proceeded to the front door. There would have been myself and two other firefighters. And we found that the door was locked and the deadbolt was bolted. So it was secure. Yes. Yes. Okay. And once you get to a scene like that, there's a fire burning inside, the door is locked. What do you do? Well, we made forced entry, uh, and and upon the arrival, we noticed some smoke coming from the left rear corner of the house, the back of the house. Was it? Would you say it was a large fire at that time when you arrived? It didn't seem to be. Uh, seemed to be pretty much confined, but we really didn't know that until we got inside. And there we have it, another confirmation. Tara's front door was indeed locked, and firefighters had to force their way inside to do their job. And it would take much more weight than their typical house fire. So, once Doug and his team make forced entry, what did they really find? Well, it was a little different than even I had imagined. To my re recollection, it was not terribly smoky, but uh, the first thing we saw was in the right-hand back corner of the room we entered was a red glow. And we went to that location thinking that was the source of the fire and found that all four burners on the stove were on high and that the knobs had been removed and laid on top of the countertop. And there it is again, another detail we haven't heard before. The stove was not only left on high with all four burners still going, illuminating a glow that led firefighters to believe this was what they were responding to, but also the knobs were removed. If in evidence all these years later might something be recovered in the way of DNA or prints? Another very intriguing new detail, indeed. Doug and his team were there to suppress a fire, remember, not to investigate a death. In fact, at this point in his timeline, firefighters have yet to discover Tara's body. And even Doug capitulates that replacing the knobs on the stove to turn it off might not have been the proper thing to do. And that may or may not have been... Um procedure but like I said at the time we didn't know not that not know there was a deceased person in the house and here I take a moment to ask Doug could he tell what was used on that stove to start the fire 
it seemed to be a uh, an Afghan type blanket, uh, like your grandmother would have made. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was placed on the stove, on the four eyes, and ignited and carried to the room where Tara was and thrown on the bed. It became obvious to Doug very quickly that even though the stove wasn't the source of the fire, it did contribute to the fire being started in the first place. Before proceeding to the rest of the house where firefighters would ultimately discover Tara's body, they knew they had to ventilate the house, which led to yet another discovery about the security of the home. We did open the back door for ventilation, uh, and it was dead bolted and locked as well. Doug and his responding team were going to search the rest of the house, where they'd surprisingly encounter even more locked doors. We back up realizing that that is not the main source of the fire, and we enter another locked door which goes into a hallway with a bedroom to the left and a bedroom to the right, and the door into the hallway was locked, and the door into Tara's bedroom was locked. Both were locked. Yes. Wow, I don't think we've heard that before. Yeah. And then you walk into Tara's bedroom. Tell yeah. me about. Tell me about that uh, moment. Well, we noticed, and this has been 21, 22 years yeah. ago, so it's kind of hard to recollect everything, but uh, recollection on everything. But um, we could tell that the fire had burned through the roof. It had ventilated itself through the roof, uh, through the sheetrock through insulation, through the decking on the house, through the shingles, and you could see the sky through the hole in the bedroom. And was the fire, you had said the blanket was thrown on her bed, it seemed. Was the fire mainly contained to that bed and the the area above it? My recollection, that is correct. Okay, would you say that the majority of the house had fire damage and water damage after you all finished your job? I don't recall any water or fire damage anywhere except for her bedroom. I think that's really important. That would mean that evidence could have very well existed and have been preserved throughout the rest of the house. Let's keep going. Firefighters are now in Tara's bedroom. How long did it take for them to discover her? Well, not long at all, says Doug. Immediately. Immediately. Okay, and tell me what you saw when it came to Tara's body, um, what it looked like might have occurred to you, just, you know, general overview of that. It appeared that she had just exited the, it's like a Jack and Jill type bathroom between the two bedrooms. She had exited the bathroom from possibly taking a shower and there was a towel. I don't remember if it was still around her or but somewhere in the vicinity of her body. And what indicates, other than the towel, that she might have just been a shower? Her hair was wet, and it seemed to have been combed with a comb. Uh, is one thing that sticks out in my mind. It was combed back, mm-hmm. um, and you could tell, you could definitely see the comb marks in her wet hair. I'm going to jump in here. The ever-elusive towel is something that has been a point of contention throughout the podcast and the course of the investigation. You'll recall from Tara's mother and her family that her stepfather, Lindsay Baker, reviewed the crime scene shortly after the fire, and he, too, noticed the towels. The firefighters are now again reiterating that point of the towel's presence. But police, in a transcript given to the Bakers in 2001, say, quote, No towel was found. That towel could have very well been a vital source of information and evidence. 
This is where I got a little curious. Once Doug and his team of firemen discover Tara's body, were they able to determine immediately that this was much more than an accidental death by fire or smoke inhalation? Well, here's his response. It seems that she was, her feet were pointed towards the bathroom door and she was in the proximity of the foot of the bed. Condition of the body, I don't remember being that bad. I mean, recognizable for sure. Wow. I want to jump in here for just a moment. Doug goes into very deep detail here about the strangulation of Tara Louise Baker, and he knows details that only the police, the family, he is the person arriving on scene that day, and myself know, so we're going to continue to hold back that information. As she had been strangled, it appeared that she had been strangled. In short, Doug is saying it was quite obvious to him Tara Louise Baker had been strangled in her home. Now, we all know that Tara wasn't just strangled. She was beaten while perhaps putting up the fight of her life. She was stabbed repeatedly, a detail I thought would be one of the first things Doug would have noticed, especially with the blood we might expect, but... And we did not notice the stab wound. We now know what that morning looked like for Doug Whitehead of the athens Clark County Fire Department. We know a few new details and have confirmed others that we've been wondering about. Up next, Doug is going to talk about the scene after the fire is suppressed and what the investigation looked like from his eyes all those years ago. And we're going to hear from Miss Virginia Baker about her thoughts on this new interview and her continued pleas for all of you with information to come forward. Stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. For this episode, I wanted to do something a little bit different and thank our friends at Historic Athens. Historic Athens strives to develop community-wide understanding of the value of historic buildings, neighborhoods, and heritage. Classic City Crime was named as one of three recipients of their 53rd Annual Preservation Awards this year in the category of Outstanding Publications and Programs for our deep dive together into the 1977 murder of Theodore T.K. Hardy. A story of a business rivalry over beer that ended in murder. Be sure to listen to this seven-part series wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again to Historic Athens for this honor and for all their hard work, which you can learn more about at historicathens.com. And welcome back. You know, it's not uncommon for police and investigators to ask fire personnel to stay at the scene of an arson and homicide long after the fire has been put out. After all, they were the first persons to see the scene uninterrupted, and there's always that small chance that the fire could rekindle. We're back now with firefighter Doug Whitehead, who stayed on the scene for hours after the fire was put out and Tara's body was discovered. He recalls quite a few very important details about the aftermath of the discovery that day. In fact, they were asked as firemen to do a daunting task. I believe we were asked by the police, we wouldn't have just done it on our own, uh, to put her on a talk and move her into uh, a cleaner environment in the living room that was not burnt, no water damage, so they could do a further investigation on her body. Upon the removal of Tara's body from her bedroom, Doug says that investigators got right to work, collecting evidence from Tara's body and from around her home. An investigative team from the police department, GBI, somebody mm -hmm. was there uh, that did 
fingernail clippings were cleaned from under her fingernails. And also later that evening, after dark, there was a, a substance, I assume to be luminol, sprayed on several of the walls and doors and a black light uh, turned on. And you had even mentioned the first time we talked that it looked like someone could have wiped the door and the wall surrounding it. It absolutely looked it? like somebody could have wiped the walls and the doors. Uh, don't know if that was from a previous cleaning from the previous ten tenants being there or related. if it had if it was related to this problem. He also made two other really important notes about things that he saw that just seemed a bit out of place that day. There was a, a window. There seemed to be a little kitchen dinette table, maybe with a couple of chairs in front of a window, but right beside the back door. And that screen from that window had been removed and propped against the outside of the house. And do you recall if the window was locked or unlocked? I do not. Open or closed? I do not. Okay. What about any footprints? We know that this was a, a rainy day or had been rainy prior to, based right. on weather history. Any Anything like that you might have noticed? Yes. There seemed to be some footprints in the mud behind these uh duplexes was not really maintained. It was like maybe one day where they were going to plant grass and fix it up, but they hadn't yet. Uh, so yeah, there was some muddy footprints and they seemed to be coming from that window or the back door area. With everything that Doug has brought to light here and his bravery in speaking out, I just had to end with asking him what he had to say to the Baker family all these years later. I do think about it from time to time, you know, and even though it's been a long time, um, wish more could be done or had been done or just sorry we couldn't do more. You know, it's just, uh, it, it's just a matter of how soon you get there and when you're notified. Uh, yeah, I'm just sorry that after all these years, they don't have any closure. Uh, and my main reason for doing this is just maybe to give them, uh, a little peace of mind and, to help them understand what I saw or what happened that day. Thank you to Doug for shedding new light on what really was discovered at 160 Fawn Drive on that dark day in 2001. I can't imagine what it must have been like to think that you were responding to a typical house fire, but instead you stepped into a mystery that would be shrouded in secrecy for decades. I know personally through my conversations with her that Doug's interview offered so much solace to Miss Virginia. You see, so much of what Doug just detailed for us here on Classic City Crime directly contradicts what initial investigators told the Baker family. In fact, let's take a look at a few of those details together right now. First, we have the window. Did someone use the window to enter or exit based on the fact that both doors were locked? Well... According to police officials and a transcript from 2001, quote, The point of entry cannot be determined. However, Sergeant Tyndall conducted independent testing in the presence of Lieutenant W.J. Smith on the window. He determined that entry can be gained through the window without damaging the screen. We also know now by another source that both doors front and back were locked. According to the same police transcript, police said, quote, Fireman David Freeman unlocked the back door knob lock and deadbolt to ventilate the apartment, and Lieutenant Durham observed that the window was unlocked and the right side of the window was slightly off track, end quote. Second here, the big mystery of the towel. 
Doug says there was certainly a towel next to Tara, which added to his theory about her exiting the shower not long before being attacked. Mr. and Mrs. Baker also recall the presence of a towel on the scene. But police in 2001? Not them. They said, quote, There were no towels near Tara, and none in the apartment were checked for evidence. End quote. Third, the use of luminol. Was it used? Wasn't it used? Some said yes. Others said no. Newspapers said one thing. Photos seemed to show another. This is a detail that Lindsay Baker also reported to his family. He said it looked as if someone had wiped the keyhole on Tara's front door. But initial investigators told the family that didn't happen either, saying, quote, No, luminol was not used at the crime scene. Fourth, you might recall this moment that really stuck in my mind from one of the first interviews with Tara's mother. Take a listen. And he came in the room and he said things. And then later when we questioned, he denied it. Hmm. But all of my family was sitting there and we all heard him say, well, she put up one hell of a fight, I'll say that. And I'm sure that's not what you wanted to hear. No. That was not what we want. And he said, well, you're going to have to excuse me. I've been out in the rain all day. I'm going to have to get some coffee. Mm. Like, yeah, okay. And during that time, the same girl, while he was out of the room, that called me, said, we have multiple injuries and we're treating this as a homicide. Mm. And I got physically ill. I don't, can't even count all the times I threw up. And, but he came back in the room and he said, we got lucky. Tara's left us a present. She has all kinds of stuff under her nails. Mm -hmm. And then he absolutely swore he never said that. Now get this. Doug also says that this type of thing was said at the scene of the crime too, but not to him or not to someone working the scene, but to Tara. We remember someone either clipping her fingernails or scraping her fingernails. I don't remember what they did, but whoever was doing it, the guy, the policeman, investigator, was talking to her like she was alive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he said something to the effect of, you put up a great fight. Kind of like what he told Kind of like what he told the family that day, yes. And I don't know if it was the same guy right. that talked to them or not. Right. Police transcripts from 2001 provided to the Baker family say, quote, Lieutenant Durham stated that he never said Tara left us a present. He said that he did tell the Bakers that Tara's fingernails and toenails were collected during the autopsy and hoped that the crime lab would be able to find DNA there. It goes on to say, quote, the only thing that the crime lab was able to determine was the presence of Tara's own blood under her fingernails, end quote. And finally, where in the world are those knobs from that stove? Well, according to the transcript, they were with the GBI at the time of the investigation in 2001. But according to a source close to the current investigation, they are sealed at the Athens-Clark County Police Department awaiting technological advancements. Could these stove knobs be the key finally to who killed Tara Louise Baker? I'm going to hope and pray about that.
because only time will tell, which is all Miss Virginia has had since Tara was taken from her 22 years ago. I get to talk with Miss Baker often, as I want her to know that I certainly will never forget Tara's case and the work that we all accomplished together. I want her to know that Tara's story lives on, and as Doug has shown us, it is never too late to speak out and come forward with your truths. And yes, I do still get emotional about this. I wanted to catch up with Miss Virginia to see what her thoughts were on this groundbreaking interview we waited nearly two years to hear. Here's a bit of our conversation. Well, Miss Virginia, love, how are you doing? I am okay, Cameron. How are you? I'm good. As you know, it's always good to talk to you. And uh, as we've been talking about this episode, I decided to name it Something is Stirring. You had someone tell you the same thing recently, I hear. I sure did. Someone who listens to the podcast and is a dear friend of mine said exactly that. She just pointed to the the sky and said, I'm telling you something's stirring. Mm. Something is stirring indeed. You know, everyone's hearing for the first time that interview from the first responding fireman who really saw the scene uninterrupted that day. Tell listeners what you thought as you listened to his account of everything he found and what it means for you all these years later. It's some, I can't say how much I appreciate the fact that he's talking about it and that he has remembered as much as he has. And it is so validating because all the things that my son and my husband said that they saw when they went to the scene to gather her belongings are exactly what this fireman has said and exactly opposite of what the police told us. So I I think sometimes that the police were trying to spare our feelings a little bit, maybe. I have to give them the benefit a little bit that maybe they were trying to spare feelings, but that doesn't help, really. You need to know facts so that you can put things together. And the fact that we were not able to see crime scene photos for so long, and then Meredith went and looked at them, what she said and what the firemen said went right along together exactly. So I feel like he was an amazing man that he could remember so much. And it made me feel much better because it made me feel like, well, maybe we weren't crazy after all. I just thought of one more thing that really made me feel better is that I had asked the police because it was a rainy morning. And I said, there has got to be footprints out there because there was no grass really behind the house. And they just sort of poo-pooed it. And I think the comment made me as somebody's watching too much TV. Because I said, you couldn't even make footprint cast. You could look for, you know, and they said, no, it was a fireman wearing regulation, their boots. And I called the firehouse and asked them about that. And they said, yeah, we all wear the same tight boots. So if there had been another set of prints, it would have been obvious. But I think they just neglected to look at that. But he has made me feel a lot better about so many things. And I'm so grateful, so very grateful to him. And he's got a wonderful memory. And from what I understand, he's about my age. So I guess that's remarkable for both of us. <laughs> What would you say to other people like Doug? You know, Doug's a fireman, of course, but perhaps there's other people out there that have information or think it's been too long. Honestly, 
I can't say it enough without even crying, but please, please, if you have even the tiniest, tiniest little thing that you remember that you think, oh, they'll think I'm foolish, that's not enough, it's not important. It could be important, and we have got to do something. We just can't keep waiting forever to put this puzzle together and find out this precious person, this precious life deserves justice. And honestly, I need to know why, why someone would want to harm someone as kind and gentle and caring as Tara was. I just, we just have to know, please, please, please speak up if you know anything, if you saw a car in the area, if you heard anything, if you heard someone else say anything, please, please, I'm begging you, come Tell us something. Get in touch with Cameron. Call them the tip line. Do, don't just sit on that information thinking it's not important, as it certainly could be. It certainly could be. And I apologize for being teary, but the gears are wearing me down. I try so hard for my other children to stay positive. There are times when I just just gotta be something. This person was not a ghost. They left something behind. Somebody saw something. Please, please call us. I want to thank firefighter Doug Whitehead for his service to the people of Athens, Clark County, for his bravery in speaking out to help us fill these gaps, and for the reminder he has now given to all of you who are listening. Every piece of information helps. And every single day, our podcast, along with the Baker family, continues to pursue leads, both big and small. Something, again, is stirring. So if you are listening and you have a piece of the puzzle or a story, whether you think it may or may not be relevant, please contact us at classiccitycrime at gmail.com or you can call our tip line anytime at 706 706- Three eight nine zero four four eight. Now I have to tell you, Classic City Crime Insiders, Doug's story isn't the only thing we're following right now. Just this week, we've had new reports of peeping toms in Deer Park that were never reported to police, of a strange black jeep parked in Deer Park the night of Tara's murder, and plenty of other stories too that we're looking at to bring to you when the time is right. Until then, we continue to search, to listen, hope, and pray that justice will be realized, that someone, somewhere, will be held to account, and that those with information that could finally bring answers would be compelled to come forward. I am waiting. The family is waiting. And we are here when you are ready. This has been a special episode of Classic City Crime Remembering and Honoring the Life of Tara Louise Baker. I'm Cameron J. Thank you.
Classic City Crime is hosted by me, Cameron J. Original design by Kyle Kazaya and editing of this episode provided by Jacob Zoller. Find us online at ClassicCityCrime.com, on Facebook and Instagram at Classic City Crime, and be sure to catch all of our seasons from Tara Baker to the award-winning story of the murder of T.K. Hardy, wherever you get your podcasts.